This episode of All the President's Minutes is brought to you by Bella Catering. Guys, bellacatering.com.au, one of Sydney's and Australia's best catering companies, are experiencing the bust, the strain, the challenges of COVID-19 that almost everyone who is listening to this episode undoubtedly is. So if you guys want to eat out, you don't want to cook, and you want to have absolutely delicious catered quality meals brought to your house anywhere in the Sydney area, bellacatering.com.au. They are dear friends of the show. Glenn and Maria and their team are amazing. Um, the only real misfit is Glenn. Um, he's a, an absolute lunatic. But the rest of the team are my very good people. And uh, and I really encourage you guys to get there and get their stuff. It is absolutely delicious. Now, thanks to Bella Catering. On to the episode in question, episode 41, All the President's Minutes. This is an excerpt from an article from Vanity Fair called I'm the Guy They Called Deep Throat. Despite three decades of intense speculation, the identity of Deep Throat, the source who leaked the key details of Nixon's Watergate cover-up to Washington Post reporters Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, has never been revealed. Now, at age 91, W. Mark Felt, number two at the FBI in the early 70s, is finally admitting to that historic anonymous role. In an exclusive, Vanity Fair puts a name and a face to one of democracy's heroes. On a sunny California morning in August 1999, Joan Felt, a busy college Spanish professor and single mother, was completing chores before leaving for class. She stopped when she heard an unexpected knock at the front door. Upon answering it, she was met by a courteous, 50-ish man who introduced himself as a journalist from the Washington Post. He asked if he could see her father, W. Mark Felt, who lived in a suburban Santa Rosa home. The man said his name was Bob Woodward. Ladies and gentlemen... Welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Joining me for a monumental minute in this project, unintentionally, but so happy, so happy that it's the man I'm talking to, is a real staggering film mind. Uh, it's a, a former One Heat Minute crew member, a Sydney-based filmmaker and teacher, Michael McLennan. Welcome to All the President's Minutes. Hey, Blake. Good to be back. Good, good to see you, and and just yeah, like, yeah, and like last time we chatted, now more than a year ago, we're talking about like one of the monumental scenes of heat, and now we're talking about one of the monumental <laughs> scenes of all the presidents men. And I say that like it was unintentional, but when I like the osmosis of you being here for this scene, a scene that for folks who are listening, it is the forty-first minute of the film is Woodward, Robert Redford, Deep Throat, Hal Holbrook in the garage with all the lines, with all of the most infamous lines of their exchange, especially in their opening exchange. These are not very bright guys. Follow the money. Like it is literally so loaded and jam-packed. I was like, God damn, the person who's going to have the burden of this minute is going to have a lot of leg, leg work to do. And here you are. It's so cool to be talking to you again. 
The truth is, these are, these are not very bright guys. <laughs> Things are going to get out of hand. <laughs> oh, we could say that of this minute and of our life. Uh, look, I know. Oh, you, but it's still touching. I know. I know you. Uh, uh, you and I talked about both of our sort of collective modus operandi with like examining films, and you really unpacked it in the last episode. And I would recommend anyone who's get a chance it's 136th minute of one heat minute. If you want to get a chance to follow Michael to do that um, and have a listen is we talked about you taking through students uh, through the same or similar kinds of processes in the scrutiny and sort of rigor of breaking down every element of a scene and why it is work, like why the harmony of all the elements work together and, and really sort of showcasing Hitchcock we talked about, and we talked about other films and filmmakers, um, but particularly someone like a Hitchcock of like the alchemy of all those elements working together. Can you talk about, your relationship with all the president's men and even Pacula in general. Cause I guess that's when I, when I was scratching around for ways that we could dive into this conversation, I was just curious around your, you, you teaching this and paranoia cinema just in general as, as, as such an effective and evocative sort of sub genre in, in the cinematic canon. Yeah, totally. And I was totally a sucker for it. I think my first real paranoia cinema film was the film, in the line of fire. Yes. Um, film from the early 90s. And it, uh, it, a lot of what's actually in this film gets collated into that. But I was, I was just a 13 year old and very impressionable, but it sort of stayed with me forever in the voice of John Malkovich. Um, my first encounter with this film actually is I come to this film very late. I'm seeing this film sometime in my mid 20s, I think. So after coming out a lot of other things, so I, I go through all of Stones Nixon, that's kind of yeah. cinematic introduction to this. I'm so around gl- the same I'm time as first time talking to someone about it on this show. I we yeah. haven't talked about Nixon and it's it's it is a text. It is a it is a text about Nixon, let me tell you. It's a, it'll curl your hair. Uh, oh goodness. Uh, and yeah, I mean really I, I knew Anthony Hopkins as Nixon before. I think I'd ever, ever seen footage of Nixon speaking as yeah. a child of the, the 80s. You're just a little bit behind it. You haven't quite seen all that newsreel. Yes. Uh, people, you know, I'm not a crook. You know, you don't know it. So I, I came to really fall in love with that. And film is such a way to learn filmmaking. I, yeah. For some people, it would have been natural. It was for me, it was Nixon. And then I have a really unfortunate cinematic experience a couple of years later, which is The Devil's Own. Which is, <laughs> it's such a sad way that I met Pacula yes. because I, I, it, I need to revisit it. Imagine a, there's more to it. Than I, I think from a craft perspective, I think uh, when I spoke to Bill Gabiri in the very first episode of this show, um, so if you're listening to this, you've likely listened to that, but I'll just say that Bill talked about Pacula having this innate cinematic quality. So like there's something, even even if the quality of the films vary, an understanding of what it takes to make cinematic movies, um, even if, you know, you're confined to small spaces or you're making big, you know, larger canvases and things like that. And look, I, I would have to admit Devil's Own is not something that I would have ever wanted to revisit had I not done this project, but having like most of his movies on repeat just to keep myself so fresh parallax include like his you know central trilogy and then even presumed innocent which i just adore um yeah that i think he, always worth a revisit mr pacula 
And and I did sneak by a Pelican Brief. I just didn't know that was him. Yeah. And that had left a mark on me. And it's a very thoughtful film, actually, that one. Mm. Uh, that, that one I have caught up with. I haven't seen Devil's Own again. So that's, that's kind of how I find him. And I didn't really know that was him in The Devil's Own, but I sort of slowly found my way back to um, Presumed Innocent and then finally lighted on all the President's Men because it sort of had that reputation. Everyone said that was the greatest year of the Oscars ever, so I chased them all down, watched them. And that's where you sort of go, okay, okay, this is something else, uh, the precision of it, the thoughtfulness of it. And so I then encountered them all backwards, Parallax View and Clute. Uh, that's my personal encounter of it. That's a little different to what you asked. You asked about uh, an in on this as an example of the paranoid genre. Yeah, it's funny. Again, I feel like a child of that genre. Like the X Files was so my oh. thing, so Deep Throat is a key part of that series. Yes, and I knew see, Deep. The, again, this is something I'm. I've been so looking forward to someone to bring up, but I'm like, the cigarette smoking man is our Deep Throat. Like that's he. He lived and yeah. breathed on our TVs for decades, basically. Um, yes, yeah. phenomenal. And, and Harris Ewan uh, as well. I think he he was was he called Deep Throat or they they. They all had unofficial names, the well-manicured man. And yes. On it. Um, so then I kind of look at this film, though, as a paranoia film. This is kind of the first optimistic paranoia film of the 70s. Yeah. Uh, you look at uh, a lot of the films leading up to that time and a lot of the hits, there seems to be this requirement that the hero of it turns out to be a great compromiser or he gets snuffed out by the world. Yes. Um and that's kind of true of Butch and Sundance. Yeah, yeah it's true of the whole bunch. It's true of the Godfather. Like you've got to, you, you know, you're going to become your father. Get used to it. And it's true of the Exorcist. Like, yeah, you can take out the devil, but you're going to get claimed. <laughs> yes. And this, this is kind of the year when it turns. Like Jaws and this film are like, no, no, no. There's, there's something we can believe in. And they're up against the, the in this film, the entire arsenal of the paranoid thriller. Like nothing's more intimidating than an off-screen antagonist that cannot be seen or felt. Yes. And this film is so much about the Akumata and the, the off-screen voice. And yet, I feel like Redford picked the tale because it was actually a hero he could believe in. It's very, it does actually have a, a very optimistic view of the world that something can overcome, uh, which I think the journalism film loses later on. Like I think if you look at things like The Insider and so on, they've, I mean, sorry, I found a way to bring it back to my <laughs> um, it's it, it's it seems, impo- It's it impossible like, not to come back to him at some, there's a gravitational pull that we'll, we'll yeah. know. Yeah. Uh, and I guess the other thing uh, I'd note about this film is I try to think of it as, okay, so Pacula is coming into this. And one thing about filmmakers is they, they get bored when they're forced to recreate their tricks over and over again. So you kind of go, He's coming into this. I think one of the things that might have appealed about the project is the idea that actually the good guys win. Yes. Um, and how to do that in a way that meshed with his his rather. I mean, I, he seems a very cerebral person from his films. He doesn't. He and, doesn't. And a pragmatist. And a pragmatist. Yeah. Because I think it's yeah. it's kind of natural for the. I guess you would say the chaos of the post-Civil War assassinations and 
everything that was happening at that time um, that inspired a tremendous amount of that paranoia and Vietnam War and all those sorts of things. It's hard not to be a pragmatist, but I think I think you're so right about the flex of how do I how do I how do I maintain hope and pragmatism because those two things don't yeah. tend to operate in in like in a cohesion. It's like this weird like it so hard not to go into jingoism, and sometimes you really have yeah. to temper it. Like it's like it's it's one of the criticisms of say, you know, talking about a completely different filmmaker. It's like, I remember watching when you watch the American flag flutter at the end of saving private Ryan. Fortunately, what it has is Janus Kaminsky's color drained view of like, this is something that is flapping in the breeze. Like it's so, it could be just this massive jingoistic flex, but at the same time, there's something that's like aged and imperfect and past about the way that it's being exhibited at the end. And it kind of underscores like a, a guy saying, earn this, like earn sacrifice. And so, you know, you, you, it's the, that you just go, oh, that maybe is a bridge too far. But here that uh, a similarly, you know, positive outlook ending is they're just still working. They just got to keep working. And the whole thing is around people consistently working. And I think one thing I, I love that you said is, and it's it's hard, it's very good. It's important to place it is it would be really easy for so many filmmakers to get trapped in the hole of like, you have to keep making like, you know, the Francis Ford Coppola thing of like, you got to keep making mafia movies because that's what we want you to do forever. And it's like, I love the story when he was making Godfather part two, like Paramount throwing a a squillion dollars at him. Like you you have to make the sequel to this movie. You have to. And he's like, okay, I'll make it. But I'm going to write an opera that you're going to be fine with me. Yep. Okay. I've got full final cut, you know, yep. I'm also making this little movie called The Conversation at the same time. So, suck eggs. That's what I'm doing. And, you know, something else. And they're like, and Paramount went, yes, yes, yes. You know, it's just like, they all tick. Yep, yep, yep. And so, it's like, to, to go for me to go back to do this, it's that. And also, there's two things from both both of the leading auteurs, as you might necessarily call them in, 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 in that sense, is like, it's Pacula, but it's also Redford. And Redford comes off the back of The Three Days of Condor, and he's exactly that guy that you just mentioned. He is yeah. that exact guy who has to fundamentally compromise or die. And the assassin is so jovial and happy and like char- actually kind of charming at the end of that thing. He's like, hey, you know, you're just going to stop and I'm, yeah, we're out of here. And you just go, oh, th- they're both trying to find their way out together of that, of the bleak outlook of life. Yeah, I need to I need to get back to the condor actually because it. Uh, I mean, it's, it's again, it's now been about fifteen years, but you know, you're right. Actually, it's it's pretty much um, it's a good movement to lead into this, and it must be. I just I was just thinking about it from Redford's point of view. Just how hard is it to find a project that kind of gives off the positive star image you want to you want to have? I, I don't think he's remotely calculated about that, by the way. But he's got to be a little bit pragmatic about um, how. Long are people going to want to watch movies that are making them feel miserable? Yes, um, because they must have sense that it's a fad, and we're we're speaking to. I know everyone says it was the one time Hollywood got it right, but it's it's a great pendulum. Um, the <laughs> yeah. way the, yes. the mood of Hollywood, it's, um, um, it will go here, it will go there. 
One thing that's sort of come up along the way, by the way, is that why why Pacula never kind of kind of stands out the way the other authors of the seventies do, and where he's not in the he's not in the Spielberg Scorsese De Palma Lucas the group, and he's not in the the Malik Man kind of group, where the, the Mavericks that kind of end up kind of getting a little bit of credibility. If anything, he's closest to Man uh, because what he and my theory of it is. Um, and it's the reason all the President's Men is the one that gets the most acclaim is the closest he gets to the kind of respectability Oscar movies. So there's, yes. there's kind of two pathways to glory. There's other, the great box office success, which, which Friedkin, Friedkin gets and De Palma gets and Lucas gets and Spielberg gets and Scorsese is going the other way. He's kind of, he's just getting this reputation as the edgy voice, a little too edgy for Oscar. Um, the Coppola kind of gets both. He gets both. Godfather and his. Yeah. Um, they also get that classic book, um, Peter Biskind's book, that sort of lionizes them and never once mentions Pacula. And Pacula works away in a genre that is a little bit like the, the crime procedural. It's the thriller. The critics, or the film lovers like you and me, we love it because the mise-en-scene gets to go nuts. It's, yes. It's, so rich and aesthetic, uh, the things that are unsaid, the subtext, all that really gets to come out in the thriller. But it seems like something about its pessimism never really hits off with Oscar. And it's seen as a little bit too genre for those who kind of go, no, I want my I want my voice-oriented filmmakers, damn it. Where's the voice of Alan Pakula? Like, it, it feels like, uh, you know, um, it feels a little anonymous in genre at times. Uh, it, expertly made, but they they use these words like, you know, the, the, the master craftsman kind of thing, which is yeah. to be the, sort of like a touch of death. Yeah, I think, it, that's, I think that's my theory anyway. I think it's a good theory yeah. because it's it's very tonal. It's not shot based as much as it's mood based. And I think if you watched if you watch Clute, Parallax, Presidents, Pelican Brief, Presumed Innocent, there's a discomfort of this, there's a discomfort that is just like draped over all of it. And they're all very entertaining and some of them are brighter and, you know, again, they're all very thoughtful, but it's, it's just some of those, I, I, I get what you're saying. It's, it's like that. And what's funny and is, very- yeah. What's funny though, is those guys, they all, had, all the guys that you just mentioned, Scorsese, Coppola, Lucas, De Palma. And I would just go, right out there and particularly say Spielberg because I've heard, you know, on this show, Liz Hanna, the the co-writer of The Post, she talked about being on set with Spielberg. It was literally her first film, which is just absolutely staggering for anyone to imagine what that's like. Liz is my age, you know, around our age. Like she's just like, like that kind of person standing on set with Spielberg and she's watching him frame up a shot and she's like, wow, that's such a pacular shot. And he like looked at her like hand on heart, like touched and went, oh, thank you. Like, he loved it. Like those guys love him. They love how he could create a mood, how he could have a guy walking through a car park and make your knees shake, you know, like they, they respected the hell out of him. And my, you know, the, the closest I think to the level of paranoia, and this is to bring back around to Michael Mann, uh, the closest thing that I've ever seen to like pure paranoia that Pacula could do is the golf is the driving range scene in Insider. 
Like that that five minutes which we, of, about which we talked about last time. It's the five minutes of yeah. the most pure piece of paranoia filmmaking that you've ever seen. And that like that's a pacular scene to a T. To a T. Just all mood, all tone, all you know, it's it's all impressions of, of what life is like. It doesn't say, need to say anything. It's just you don't need to anything articulate. All the subtext is there. It's just brilliant. You should do a podcast called a three-minute golf scene from the inside. <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't. I, there are so many. Not pro- even 12 <laughs> There are so many projects. There are so many projects right now. Um, but, you know, the inside, you know, it, I, I genuinely, I think those three guys that you we just talked about, Malik and Man and Pacula, it's, it's it's something that I've explored like in a research basis, you know, that whole concept of authorship and and not in like a not in the Saris way necessarily around that the, the, they're sort of these detached entities, but they're people with political ideals and and things like that. And so you can sort of track how much like how man is much like those other guys and Malik through their social commentary in their films because you can track it. Whereas like the one that's the, the most egregious of them all not being counted as a contemporary is Pacula because he's literally wrestling with contemporary issues as they're happening. He's not making films like Malik every 10 years or man who's, you know, goes to TV and then comes back and it's like decades before he's making his big films again. This is a guy who's in the moment making these huge movies. That's what's even more strange about it. Well, it, it, don't rule out that there might be a, a room full of smoking men who are kind of <laughs> deciding that Alan Cool was a little close to the truth uh, at, <laughs> in his time. Um, one, one thing, by the way, I just had to remark on with this film, when I, I watched it the other night, um, I actually had to attempt it three nights because my body seems to know when I sit in a chair, it goes, oh, you're sleeping, aren't you? Yes, yes. And, and the, I made it five minutes in three <laughs> nights and then finally I said, I'm not going to sit, I'm going to stand up and watch it. <laughs> and I, I, then, I, then I sat down once I was hooked and uh, I just, the discipline of the direction, the care which, on two facets, one, the care with which he keeps them from going to melodrama. Mm. And there's more melodrama in the script than, than is there in the edit in these long take scenes of two yeah. people talking. So it's kind of been edited out as they're staging it, is my guess. And, and so the care of keeping them from kind of Putting conflict where it doesn't need to be, but also the the care of just the very like you're you're stuck in this room shooting for many weeks. I assume this this massive set and there's the way camera movement just slowly builds up in the film from its very first pan of them walking out to the library. Well, it's not the first movement, but it's one of the first kind of gestures that mm-hmm. kind of stirs you out of sitting at your desk for for half an hour through to the run across the the room at the end it's just it's like yeah th- this is the kind of this is the kind of care that makes a film like this work uh, of just just slowly 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 just letting it come out and, and he sort of scales the dynamism of the filmmaking to the part of the film he's in and I, I always respect it when someone can pull off something like that just a really clean concept that expresses the, the narrative yeah I think you know, the the accountant scene that is often referenced in this movie um, where Bernstein is interrogating Jane, oh, sorry, not accountant, bookkeeper, Jane Alexander's character, her Oscar-nominated performance 
um, there is so much that you could tell in the script and in just the pure dialogue that feels like some people would want to really underline it. You know, they want to highlight it. They want this to be their showy moment. And I feel like in those moments, Jane Alexander and Hoffman, they execute the scene in whispers. It's like six or seven minutes of just whispers and barely raising your voice. It's like, you know, for you and I who have young kids in our lives, it's like the late night conversation you have with an old friend that you're desperately trying not to speak too loudly in because it's just too late and you don't want to wake up people in your house. It's like that, that element is there. And yeah, you're so right. It's, it's, it's him going, no, we are not putting any shine on the ball. And it's a criticism. This is, this is Pacula's genius. It's a criticism that happened with another film that won an Oscar, not only nominated, but won, which is Spotlight, Tom McCarthy's film. And it's a technique that Pacula is able to use, but scene to scene, he's got this, I don't know, this incalculable stylistic quality. Whereas you get something like Spotlight, which I think is a very accomplished film and a, a, a performance showcase. McCarthy's a, a, an actor first, director second. And so you can totally tell he's just like drawing out amazing performances. And so many people are like, oh, this is like a really stylless drab thing. Like it doesn't, you know, that was one of the main criticisms of it. It's stylless, it's drab. And I'm like, if you just watch Lee Schreiber's character, who's the editor there, there's a moment in the film where he's like, he's circling their final story that they're about to publish where, you know, it sort of triggers the, the finale of the film. And he's like, he's like, I'm just circling adjectives. We're going to take this out. And it feels like Tom McCarthy, that's Tom McCarthy's directorial style. He's taking out the adjectives in the filmmaking. He's just presenting things as they are. But Pacula's the guy who can like do the same thing, but, he's made an art out of doing less. You know what I'm saying? There's something that is just impossible to gauge. Like how do you, how do you do all those same things, but it's art. I think he masters in this film, the balance between uh, first person point of view and what it almost feels like looking at the story from space. Yes. So like the, the library Congress shot on the, yeah. the, some of the, the long lens zoom shots and the shots of going down the car park, a lot of it sort of feels like you're you're at such a distance from the story. You're at such a such a remove. You're you're so dispassionate from it. And a lot of the choices around the depiction of Nixon, very much the same. Like it it it, it feels so careful to to avoid taking a position through playing that character in the narrative. Um, and goodness, I mean, when the film came out, probably it was just impossible to cast someone as no. As Nixon, like you just go there because the, you you instantly invite too much uh, of a thing about that. Uh, but then he can very much go into the first person. I was just thinking of that section you, you covered in an earlier episode where the uh, Woodward's watching a conversation going on in between Bradley and uh, Rosenstein in the yes. office while Bernstein writing his paper and it's just such a mastery of the the camera is very much with him and the and uh everything he's seeing and it just you you're kind of forced to process the world from being a small person in it not understanding it and then you get to step back to kind of seeing everything from 
a father, but still not understanding. <laughs> yes. It's not it's, it's not omniscient. It's not omniscient, right? That that third person perspective sometimes no, no. feels menacing and omniscient and other times it feels like you're just like, I don't know what the fuck's going on in this city. I don't know if anything we're doing yeah. matters. You know, like that shot where they where they're announcing the names of Crete and the houses and and the name is playing over and then that beautiful Shire score is like dun 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 like pacing your thoughts. There's that beautiful moment where it's just like they 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 truly in that moment feel like they have no clue whether what they're doing is having any impact whatsoever, and it's just great. It's just wonderful. Yeah, I mean one one thing I think in particular, I, I know we've eventually got to play the minute here. Um, <laughs> we're he, gonna try. We're, I, in, I, a, in another I, one heat minute production, uh, and I can reveal this on air because <laughs> it's quite fun. Is uh, we're doing inherent vice. It's increment vice. It's hosted by the absolutely terrific film mine travis woods and i'm uh, i'm grateful to produce it cat corbett's our narrator and i remember how proudly travis told me blake we've finally done it i got a text we've finally done it we've gone an episode that is longer than the film <laughs> i was like great i've got to listen to this thing and edit it into something and maybe not cut things out and he's like yeah so look we're you know we're about half an hour or so in i mean it's not impossible for us to just do this whole damn rum time if you like michael we can we can just see where we go before we play the minute true true um and i in that in that space i think i i think i lost it so um the film is the film is secure <laughs> well, yeah, no let, let's get yeah. to this minute it is minute 41 it is 40 on your dial exactly the fortunate thing about all the president's men unlike heat um and also aligned with increment vice is uh, inherent vice rather is you're looking at the same text there is no director's cut there's no different versions so if you're watching this on dvd or blu-ray or on video on demand it's 40 minutes on your dial so Hit pause on the podcast right now. Check out the minute that Michael and I are going to watch together. And then we're going to come back and talk about it. It says that he wants to spend more time with his family. It sounds like bullshit. We don't exactly believe that. Oh, but it's touching. Forget the myths that the media has created about the White House. The truth is, these are not very bright guys. And things got out of hand. Hunts come in from the cold. Supposedly, he's got a lawyer with $25,000 in a brown paper bag. They follow the money. What do you mean? Where? Oh, I can't tell you that. But you could tell me that. No, I have to do this my way. You tell me what you know, and I'll confirm. I'll keep you in the right direction if I can, but that's all. Some minutes are made for shows like this, and that one is as good as it gets. Funnily enough, my uh, favorite line there has got to be, no, but it's touching. Uh, there's <laughs> something in that I line reading. It. The uh, line reading is <laughs> out of control good. It's so good. It actually, it, it you don't realize it in a vacuum, sorry, you don't, sometimes don't measure it in the totality of all the things that he says, but it's in, when you're isolating it into a minute like this, you're like, God, it has such a wonderful way of like humanizing him. 
Like he's got some sarcasm about this whole thing. Like first they're not very bright guys. And you know, oh, he's coming from the cold. And it's like, yeah, but it's touching. Like it's like, come on. These are guys who are using all of the things that all of your assumptions, all of your heart, all of your non-cynical ways as means for them to maintain their power order. And he just says it in one line. God, it's a beautiful performance. It's just so good. The uh, I had a quick glance at the script before um, before we talked. Uh, yeah. the, the one that's up at Cinephilia and Beyond, yes. and uh, just to kind of get and it was it's interesting. It's a bit of a jumbled document because it sort of jumps forward twenty pages back at one point. But it, I was looking at this scene, and it's funny. The I kind of thought, gee, was this re-edited quite a bit? But uh, because the order of some of the lines is quite quite different and it doesn't actually have um, Hal Holbrook coming around to reiterating how this is going to work. Now, you tell me. Uh, he says that at the start of the scene, which is, I mean, you probably covered that in a previous minute. Yes. But he doesn't, in the, he doesn't say it at the end. And it's, but the funny thing is you can tell from the way it's cut that, no, they changed this in camera. Somewhere they've gone and rehearsed this and they've, they've kind of felt, okay, the scene needs... No, but it's touching will be better before forget the myths rather than after. And there's just these little things that give it this rhythm. When you read it on the page, it's like, oh, it's, yeah, it's a little bit, it's a little bit, it's not, it's not sentimental. It's almost moments of it. Oh, it's a little bit rote or a little bit paranoia, but there's something about this order. And it could just be because they're saying it with feeling like they, they, they believe it. Um, but it was just, it's an interesting aspect of this film because I didn't realize until looking into it for our discussion there was a dispute between Redford and uh, Goldman about the, yeah. the authorship. Although Goldman mostly says, I, I don't care. I, I, I hated working on it anyway. But <laughs> so, yeah. Goldman's got a great perspective. Yeah. I think um, there's been some great stuff. The cinema, uh, Cinephilia and Beyond, firstly, is a great site. So for you guys and their friends of One Hit Minute, so if you want to check them out, please do. Um, number one. Number two, it is fascinating because even though Redford talks about the authorship, it's it's kind of it's one of those things where you have to play devil's advocate and go, they're actually both right. Because almost everything that we see is absolutely on the page. And if you look at Goldman's who kept meticulous drafts and dated them, Goldman's draft, like all of the words are there. Like all of the sentiment is there, all of the structure is there. But you're exactly right. There is something so different about being in the scene creating the mood of the scene, having the two performers in the scene together and then going, no, he needs to reinforce that here. He needs to remind people after four minutes that these are the rules by which they will go about their way. So, so that the audience understands that why wouldn't this guy just give them everything at this moment? It's like, there are certain things that you go, oh, okay, functionally it makes more sense to do it this way. And I think that that's where Redford and Pacula say, oh, we rewrote every scene Yes and no. Like the, it's just a yes and yeah. no. It's it's one of those things. It's like that. Yes and no. It's it's how do you how do you quantify the impact of feeling it out organically and just changing things up slightly to make it work? Or also for these two guys, Redford and Hoffman, there's something that, I mean, you as a filmmaker would know this better than anyone. The two leads memorize each other's lines so that they can interrupt yeah. one another at any point in any scene they're in and have the comfort level to do that 
And therefore, you as the filmmaker who's setting up your coverage, that changes your entire coverage scheme because then both guys have to be in focus in every scene or both guys have to be, we have to have a split diopter going so that you've got, so that you can hit every person so that it's not just that. Like it changes every setup. It changes everything. And so I just think it's one of those things where it's, I think it's like the beauty of the whole piece. It's like, as you know, that other people aren't as familiar with, like a script is phenomenal and it's great. And it's the foundational element of the movie, but like it's the people bringing things to the script and having the guts to like go off book if they need to, if it doesn't quite work Um, or if it's not working in the moment for the scene that like actually is part of it. Like it's kind of expected. Yeah. No, there's a sort of expression, uh, the ultimate cooler shove effect is which line comes goes where, uh, which yes. I, I gather you're familiar with, with a bowl of soup and a, a, a little <laughs> girl's coffin and a, a, a dancing girl and what a, what a mysterious Russian man thinks about them. Um, and they're just they're little games I would like to play in class. I, I, one of my favorite ones was recutting the waterfall scene from The Fugitive so that he, um, he jumped too quickly so that he, he didn't seem to be desperate enough before he jumped it. Just, just <laughs> didn't, it didn't kind of have the, wait, where's, <laughs> where's the bit where he had no other choice? It, it just didn't feel like, oh, he's really cool with that. <laughs> um, and I, I like to do the same sometimes with dialogue scenes because they, there is, I often find uh, in, in the editing room, there's a point where actually it, it sometimes even, it's not even on the floor. Like there's a thing that feels right there and it felt right on the page where like now that line has to go to the end of the scene for some reason. Yes. Uh, ideally you catch the before you go and film. And I, I feel like this team certainly did. It's like the, the way they filmed it, it doesn't feel, the coverage suggests that you could reorder this scene because we're, we're shooting close up and we're not really cutting to a two shot ever in the scene. Yes. But it's, um, it, it, no, it, it, I, I don't think they took many easy ways out on this film. And they didn't have long to edit it. Like this this somehow turned around somewhere between July of that year and and critics were watching it somewhere in November. Like yeah, November, December. Shooting I mean, yeah, I, like I, I, I like to gauge thing from Ebert's review and Roger Ebert's review was January 1st, 1976. Because he's competing for Oscar yeah. in February. Yeah. And it's out in January. And and they didn't have as much editing time then because they had to lock up the cut and kind of send it off to, to not so much music, that wouldn't have taken long here. Um, more sound posts uh, would have been the major, major issue. Um, it's, it's an interesting scene to come into this film because it's the massive visual departure from the rest of it. Yes. Uh, it, uh, I did appreciate looking at the film again just how much care went into the linking of locations uh, that in particular the use of perpendicular lines sort of an attempt to use ceilings but even when you're out there with um, where Hoffman's flirting or sorry where Bernstein's flirting with the girl uh, you know she's again perpendicularly set against a hedge and then yes. you've got those church pews the courthouse um, it is such a care to kind of make sure this visual structure kind of ties a very dis- diffuse set of environments together. Uh, it's it's really beautiful, and it's sort of it's it's present earlier in the scene before we really get to this minute. We don't really have it here. From here, we're into singles. Uh, the things I kind of appreciate, I guess, about this scene, it's one of the few soft focus scenes in the film. Mm-hmm. 
Yep. It's like uh, looking at Redford, it's a real, real lovely bouquet of, uh, you know, fluorescence kind of smearing in the background. And uh, I think what's Holbrook got behind him? Uh, I mean, he's got one of those classic vertical lines just to the left of him. He's got a little bit more depth, like, because I guess he's got a bit more of the structure behind him. And the other guy's a little more clueless at this point. But his his legs uh, at the big it, 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 like his legs are pillars, right? Like it's like as as he's framed in that scene, that first cigarette, his eyes, like his eyes are the most, you know, probably crisply in focus things in his introduction. Only a few minutes earlier, and then it rolls into this, and it's all soft, it's all so gentle, and you are looking at this painterly face, and like we scrutinize it now on beautiful digital screens in high definition, and I kind of uh, when, when you when I had a chance actually got to see it. Um, earlier this year, actually, in Sydney on a big screen um, for the first time. Um, Is it as cyan as um, – because the digital print I'm seeing, I'm so aware of the color cyan, yes. uh, the, the sort of blue. Is it, is it like that when you see it on film? It, it's, it wasn't on film. The digital print, 100%. Ah. I wish I'd seen it in 35. I was just like, the, the whole time I was watching it on digital, I'm like, yes, it's great to see it in a cinema. Yes, it's great to feel the mood. It was actually the moments of levity really play in the audience, like it, it, to help uh, to help release the the tone. Like the tone is so like, you know, so like uh, gets you right in the belly uh, that you're like, oh my God, this is really tough um, and, and tense. And then the moments of like humor, especially that line, oh, you know, so touching. You know that you feel it, but those colors are so present for me in this and in any digital print. But I, I, I don't think it would be. I don't think it would look like that. Maybe on a new print, but if you had an old print, I don't think it would. It would come out like that. I think it would just be. It would be much darker. But that's clearly the, yeah. the regardless of that color. It's clearly just to get feels like just to get the tone, to get that to to get the grading yeah. of the colors and to get the. The, the clarity of his jawline, even though it's basically in black and his neckline and then his shoulders, even though most of it's all black in silhouette. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, I don't know if you know of, uh, there's a guy, unfortunately a lot of his videos have now been put behind a paywall. His name's Wolf Crow. Um, uh, Cerise Sedekran, the, uh, Indian DP, but he, he did a lot of videos on DP style, like great tight little video essays on just, just kind of clustering info, and there's unfortunately it's hidden behind a paywall. I think it's something like five dollars a month. Um, the uh, there's a great little six minute one on Gordon Willis, and I found everything it sort of told me about Willis's style was kind of evident in the way this scene was lit. And yes, the choices of his favorite lighting was the kind actually you see on how Holbrook, which is kind of top lighting with a heavy backlight on someone and a tendency to underexpose. I mean, it's probably taken to an extreme here. Underexpose. This is probably even further than the Godfather. Um, the one on Redford is the other type where he uses strong side lighting to kind mm. of split the face down the middle. And uh, it's uh, it's kind of an each, each is appropriate, I guess, to the level you need a lot more access to Redford. So you use it that way but it's it's sort of funny to see actually he does carry these lighting styles through so much of what he does um his other big thing is a strong he was a big uh i don't want to say a nazi 
very loaded term now. Um, he, he very, uh, very forceful uh, about. I think he might. It, yeah, very keen on the practical motivation of light, and this comes up in the newsroom stuff because it was such a technical achievement for him to have those seven hundred fluorescents up in the ceiling, uh, yes. lighting that scene, and and yet. 700 fluorescents when one of them never flickers out. It's kind of a, a unique challenge. And to have the same kind of fluorescent texture kind of dimly excess down here, like it's, it's a big part of why this film has a realism to it. The light is not the tungsten light no. that a lot of DPs were playing at the time. Um, and there's some good stuff uh, in his buried American cinematographer article where he talks a little bit about this, but I couldn't figure out whether Cyan was was it an was it a compromise solution on something he was trying to head for, like this this pale pale greenish blue light in which so much of the film when it's not in the newsroom was it a compromise or was it what he was aiming for and he just worked really hard to make the newsroom kind of fit in with it. No, it's a, it's, a, it's one of those fascinating, I guess, unanswerables. I'd love to, I'd love to hear. And if someone knows, look, um, hit, hit, hit us up. A mail at oneheatminute.com is where you can find us. Or if you're on the Twitter sphere, it's at ATPMPod. Um, you can find me at One Blake Minute as well. So if you, if you happen to know, if you know of an article or something like that that sort of talks about that, that specific Cheyenne that's coming through, please yep. let us know. But yeah, I, he's. It's funny, the only one major thing I want to touch on there from sort of your great insight is I think that that's his, his pushing the cinematic, la- cinematic language and visual, cinematic visual language away from tungsten lights and that classicism is one of those things why a lot of his films continue to feel super contemporary long, long, long afterwards because it's like until digital photography really comes in and you can aban- you can all but abandon classical lighting um, in a lot of senses and, um, uh, and, and, and move into, you know, when color grading becomes au fait and people can sort of manipulate things in a, in a much more overt way. Um, I think that's where people say, you know, they talk about the Godfather like, Looks like a contemporary film today. Yeah, I think. Uh, sorry, I cut you off. That no, no, no. Yeah, no, go. Sorry, you, you go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Um, color control is a big thing for him. Yes. Um, he, yeah, like there are more colorful films from him than this. In fact, um, uh, Parallax View is one of them. Yeah. Funnily enough, it's got at least three colors in it. Yes. Um, it's a little bit more in the Paris, Texas school. Let's get all the primaries in here really strong. Uh, but this this one's a little bit more like the Godfather. It's like none of this. It's pretty. There's, there's a lot of playing on polarities of white and dark, and then there's the sort of cyan running between them. There's a little bit of burnished wood kind of to sort of go around. But it, you're mostly kind of aware. Like this is the same decade when you know Coppola ultimately leaves Gordon Willis to work with Vittorio Storaro and embrace that. You know, we're going to have every color here, and it's not going to have our damn mind it. Like we're just going to expressionism here, uh, and it's it's interesting to sort of think that you know anyone would have gone from Boris to Storaro because I love Storaro stuff. But it's it's you would think if you go for one, like you wouldn't go for the other. Like if you're with Janusz Kaminski, you don't go with Vittorio Storaro. <laughs> you don't you don't go for Roger Deakins. Like they're such different looks. But I think, uh, but I think that's a uh, you hear about that, and maybe it's because this is what 
uh, we touched on right at the beginning of this minute is control. Pacular as a filmmaker has control, control with perspective, control with distance of the scene where he wants you to be viewing the scenes and is more seems to be more meticulous in the way that he sets up a shot. Whereas Coppola, um, as much as he can orchestrate really precise chaos and, and things like that, it is he does like scenes to have a bit of organic chemistry. That's why he's famously shooting people around dinner tables and, and, and he wants people eating and his most famous scene, you know, as much as we might, adore and it is absolutely stunning in its new 4k print the uh the helicopter scene in apocalypse now you know the village scene where you know the the rise of valkyries and all that sort of jazz it's just one of the most stunning scenes ever there's nothing more stunning than the wedding in the godfather part one like there's almost nothing more stunning in cinema like it's such a it's so full of life and and so you feel like you feel like Willis, that would have driven him insane (laughs) like a guy who like is you know, like I think it, maybe that's better, but there, there are some in my research, there are some articles and things like that, that Willis used to be driven insane by Coppola's like wanting more organic. Like I want this person here and now I need this set up like this. No, he's going to move. No, they can't move. Yes, they're going to move. You know, that conflict that I suppose it was happy, but at the same time, it was uh, definitely uh, probably a little bit tough. Well, apparently that was a thing. That that was a thing for him. Was um, he was very keen on people being lit where they were standing. Yes. So if in, in say Redford and Holbrook's close-ups, he wouldn't have really liked the fact that Redford was walking in to his, his close-up here. That no. was, he. So I could see why actually, yeah, the the wedding scene would have because I would have thought, oh, nobody surely would have loved the aesthetic contrast of the interior of Vito's room versus the exterior, like what that was amounting to. But maybe you can only achieve attention like that when two people are pulling in the opposite direction. hundred uh, percent. Lewis is in charge inside and, and Coppola is in charge on the outside. Um, and there is that thing where DP's set aside a look above the, the expressive range of the picture sometimes and they flatten, they can flatten that with their look. Um, Sorry, I'm going a little little off the rabbit hole here. No, no, um, you you're good. I was just going to say to to bring us back. We've we've talked about icons. We've talked about things. Uh, you know, we've talked about technical aptitude and color. Can you ever know that you have an iconic line in a script like these are not very bright guys? Do you think that Goldman ever just goes pens down? That's great. Like that's that's a line. Like, can you ever know? Like I especially after heat, like I've never, it's so hard to know like what the line of the movie is. And then now in this project, like these are not very bright guys. Almost every person that's come onto the show has had something to say about that line or often talks about that line. Or if people are tweeting about the film, I see them say that line. It's like, I often wonder like, do you ever go pens down, push your chair back from your desk and be like, that's it. That's the one that's, that's going to be the money line of this whole damn thing. Yeah, I think um, I, I would have thought it would have be followed the money that he'd he'd have he thought gone for. I, I think, line, yeah, yeah, yeah I, I would think so. Just it's it's so concise and direct, and the, the, he comes back to it yes. the second time. That's yes. usually a sign someone really likes their line. Would be a guess, but it, it's whereas the these guys are not very smart guys. I mean, it's. It's interesting because it's in contrast to almost everything else that then happens yeah. in the narrative. It, 
seems like it. So it it's got a it's got a way of standing out there. It's such a there's something I think also in the whole book delivery. There's there's a skepticism and a superiority towards these people he's talking about, and yet he's afraid of capture on the phone in the previous scene. Like the these these little contradictions are probably partly why that line stands out. Whether that would entirely be apparent to the writer, uh, it's hard to say. It's hard yeah. to know if it's going to leap off. The I mean, it always it. sounds great. It always sounds great in your head when you write it. I will say that. Yeah, like <laughs> I, I, would, I, I would imagine. I would imagine these aren't very bright guys, but it's just that. I think that you've just nailed the whole contrast of the film, which is the 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 power dynamic is that in the hands of you know what is ultimately you know, one of America's most accomplished from a political standpoint and international diplomacy standpoint is one of the most powerhouse presidencies ever. He's also riddled with this, you know, crippling, obsessive, like obsessive controlling impulse and dispatches a whole bunch of these questionable dullards who basically take all of his orders at variety of degrees, take all of his orders as gospel to do this stuff. And so you also see that like, what's so funny is the levels of confidence. And we've talked about a couple of times in the show so far, but the levels of confidence with which people undertake these kind of fucking crazy things, they just do crazy things. Like I'm just going to be in a suit and sticky tape in a, like a really prominent hotel. I'm going to duct tape a, I'm going to duct tape a door open. And it's like, you're in a suit and gloves. You're not like hiding. You're not going to hire a cat burglar. You're just all going to be there in your clothes. You're going to eat in the same restaurant the night before and eat lobster and drink and speak loudly so that people might know who you are. Like, of course, these are not very bright guys, but that's the, the scary thing is that these not very bright guys also wield the power of the world's remaining superpower. It's that fundamental thing. Yeah. Like right now, the thing that is most scary in a world of COVID-19 is that the guy who we can laugh and and commend news organizations like CNN for putting accurate chevrons about his lack of admitting to poor handling and, and reacting too slowly and, uh, you know, basically tantamount to just flat out, you know, Lenny Riefenstahl propaganda in a news conference and things like that also has his finger on the nukes. Like, it's scary. It's a really scary prospect. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, as to the current um, demagogue, I yeah, can only <laughs> say that tra- tragedy, tragedy, tragedy and comedy are equally defined by their endings. The moment prior to that are equally far from those endings. So tragedy is always... In bliss, the moment before it falls, and uh, comedy is always in the greatest peril solely before it reverts. So, um, I'm not sure. Maybe we're not even in one of those, but um, yeah, that that would be my hope: is that things move fast when they change, um, and uh, they certainly move fast in the closing minute of this film. Yeah. Uh, although they'd relate such an extent of time uh, at the end of this film. You know, one, one line of dialogue in this film. Oh, sorry. Uh, no, go, go, please. Um, one line of dialogue, it, trust me, pops up somewhere in this scene. Is that right? Is, is it, um, you can trust me, uh, or uh, I think he says, it might actually be in the minute before, but I, 
I did notice that how much of the structure of this script as stage was actually about scenes of people trying to win trust. Oh yeah, it, it seemed to be a thing over and over. Like even the the what's normally staged as a conflict scene with uh, Hoffman and Redford kind of first kind of looking at, did you write my article better? It's still it. This film seems like an essay, and what it takes to build. Uh, a coalition that can run up against something. You're going to take a bunch of frightened people who've been sort of who have reason to distrust each other or are incentivized to play against each other, and we're going to see them build new alliances and enough of an alliance. And so it just seems to happen again and again and again. I mean, you're going to see it in so many later minutes of this film with the potential interview subjects. But I just sort of highlight it because it enters into the even here in the deep throat scene. He's appealing to you can trust me. And the caution that comes after that, and also it's um, it feels like different stakes that that feel like the the motivating factor for clarifying that trust. Like like with Deep Throat, that's what's so cool in the run up to this scene, and I think you're pretty spot on with that. Is he's saying, "Oh, but you gave me that other guy, like about a presidential assassination. Like you gave me something that was about a man." Um, who was attempted to be assassinated, who was a president, uh, who was a presidential candidate, and he's like, this is different. Like, and that's even in the phone call that leads up to it. I, I think I think you're so right. It's like the, the stakes of this, both internally for your own moral questioning, where people who are Republicans, who are in the Senate, you know, Senator, you know the Senator elect the president, um, who are all there having to having to reveal these things and knowing that the consequences are potentially impeachment or whatever, um, that, that level of convincing is like, do you take your morality or is it your political allegiances or is it your, or is it doing your job, you know, in inverted commas, what your job is, or is it morality? And that's why I think ultimately I, I just adore about this because it's literally different grades of a morality play playing out in front of us a lot. And it's putting people in uncomfortable situations where they are leaning into those things that they that are right. People are making the right calls. And yeah, they're, they're, they're making the right calls. And sometimes the right call, as Ben Bradley explains in his story, is someone saying, you know, they they making J. Edgar Hoover the, the the head of the FBI for life and then, you know, tell Ben Bradley, fuck you. Like, you know, those sorts of things. It's, you know, you're not, a, you don't always get a pat on the back for being right. I think that sometimes you have to go out on a, go out on a limb and be right and, uh, and smell blood as Sally Aitken says to the boys, you know, I got to smell blood like you guys. Yeah. It's true. It, look, I think the film definitely gets that right. I think, I think a lot of films about journalists kind of have to grapple with it. It's very hard to land a blow without hurting yourself in the process. Yeah. Like uh, whenever you're destroying value, it's always going to rebound in some way. I, I wish I could say I had no personal experience with that, but I, 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 alas, I do. Not as a journalist, but um, yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, look, there's one other tiny little technical thing I've just got to mention. It's, it's an odd thing about this scene there's a sort of thing that usually pops up in film schools, uh, this obsession with the 180-degree rule, mm-hmm. uh, the idea that you stage the scene entirely from one side and you, uh, I think Hitchcock called it the, um, uh, I've actually forgotten what Hitchcock called it, actually, I'm probably getting a little late, but he, um, 
uh, they start the scene on the other side and then cut into close-up shot from the other side. And it's it's done carefully on a movement edit of Redford moving into the position where he's going to be talking. So it, it's done in such a way that if you're ever going to break the 180-degree rule, that's sort of how you do it because the audience will never get disrupted by it. But it does insert a little angular kind of feeling into the scene of it's, it's not the comfortable rhythms of a way a confrontation or a usual seeking out a secret source plays out. It's an angularity and the way he plays with perpendicular lines on the ceiling always against it. It seems like that's such a peculiar thing. He loves it. It's in so many of his films. Yeah, the, um, the subtlety of partially notes, the, the subtlety of partially yeah. breaking a rule, like like you said, it's like mm. you're, you're doing yeah. something that's not distractingly off, but off. And this whole scene is off because it's yeah. weird. It's weird for him to be in a car park at three in the morning and have to catch two cabs to get there. Like the whole thing is weird, but that, that is just such a subtle, it's such a subtle thing. I think that's really important though, when you sometimes talk about the rules, because that's when things feel rote. I mean, we were talking about sometimes scripting feeling rote, but it's like when you just adhere to the rules and you adhere to formal I guess the formal basics and you're not willing to challenge it for the tone of a scene or like when you do something, Oh, you can't do that. Cause it will mess with people. It's like, well, no, I, maybe I want to, maybe I want to mess with them in this scene just a little bit. I just want to keep the disquiet because it is just, again, another conversation and like so many movies when there's lots of exposition and conversation and investigation can just get super boring really quickly because they're just over and over at play. And like another movie that does it so well, um, just for the changes of scenery, the same ch- changes of tone, the the changes like something like um, Altman's A Long Goodbye. Like I love that as a detective film oh, yeah. because of how during the investigation as people are interrogating one another and things like that, it's always like different weird and wonderful scenes. And then the interiority is exterior, like, you know, um, uh, Elliot Gould's like narrating his whole life basically as Marlowe. Like he's like, he's kind of, it's all exterior and, and you're in really brightly lit spaces and then weird offices where people are in different varying things of dress. And then you're on a beach and then you're in a beautiful moody dinner. And then you're this strange yogic, lesbian orgies that live across the road from you like what the hell is that like it's just one thing about this film is like they don't want any of that surreal you know surreal level of uh things or like weird characters or quirkiness but they you can just do the most subtle of a change of what a rule would be when you're shooting one of these scenes and it completely shifts the dynamic even in what what is being focused on and what is not it's kind of, yeah, it's what sort of separates the sheep from the goats with, with me in terms of the, but I, I sometimes privilege technique over a more striking aesthetic voice and so something that the DPs I work with keep reminding me, no, 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 we're, <laughs> we're trying to make it different to everything. I'm sort of like, no, 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 but we could just, just change the island slightly and it would be, be so be so beautiful. So I probably got a little bit of Pakua's tinkering urge. Uh, one, uh, I, one thing I did, want to note also was I was trying to think of where was he coming from and I noticed in uh, the Pelican Brief when I saw it recently there's this great recreation of the touch of evil car explosion mm-hmm. at one point in it and like to the shot the way people run up to where when Julia Roberts runs up to the car it's pretty much the opening of touch of evil and it started to make me look at Pakula as is he an Orson Welles nut or the ceilings 
and I started thinking about things like the trial and touch of evil and I thought was like the the sense of insecurity, the paranoia is a lot of it going back to there. Lewis was often described as like a black and white the first black and white cinematographer of the colour era. Yes. Uh, in the way he was playing with shadow and so on. And it could just be accidental, but I it was just an interesting way to view this film was to go, is there a bit of Orson Welles love going on behind it? Obviously with a very different attitude to melodrama because Welles is like Baroque as all get out. But, yes. Um, there's still a lot of visual choices though that you'd recognize if he was. And I, I don't know enough about Fukuda. Do you know if there's anything to that? No, I'd, I don't. But I'm going to demand that as we're wrapping up this show, I, I think we're going to have to exchange emails about what the best companion wells and peculiar films are going to have to be so we've got touch of evil and pelican brief have to be a a nice companion viewing night and while we're in self-isolation we might have to think about what other wells films pitch with best because i think kane is the obvious one to go with all the presidents right like i think that they're these are these are morality conversations yeah the trial versus parallax view that's a great one that's a really great one so i think i think there's there's good ones we can share but no i'm 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 gonna try and get my hands if, if anyone's listening and they know a recommendation i'm gonna do some googling myself but if anyone's got like any great pacular book recommendations um i would really love to to check that out um uh, and particularly more biographical stuff i would love to check it out but look i can't think of a better way to end um you know, one of the most iconic scenes I personally think of in American cinema than uh, comparisons between Pacula and Wells. God, I think that is the, that's a tall, a high compliment for a guy who I think is drastically under complimented in his entire career. Michael Clennon, mate, yeah. it's always a pleasure talking to you. This is, uh, didn't disappoint at all. And, uh, it's, it's and it's, it's such a treat. So, uh, we'll, uh, we'll definitely stay in touch, but thank you for letting me throw one of the most iconic scenes in American cinema in your lap, uh, again. Uh, and thank you so much for having me. I, I'm really honored to have been asked to, to follow the money and, you know, um, <laughs> very, very touching. Um, I do have to, by the way, give a shout out to my wife insisted she insisted I embarrass myself at key moments to sort of just say that Paddington was the greatest film ever uh, and I'm, I'm required to say this because she's watching right now well look yeah. you, 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 you tell her that here at One Heat Minute Productions we have a deep and unabiding love uh, for um Paddington 2 as a film. I'm not such a fan of Paddington 1. Paddington 2 is absolutely outstanding and I continue to press to try and make my children love it. Uh, but I'm so far failing with the three and a half year old and uh, her almost two year old brother is uh, is is not quite there yet. But uh, the day that I, they can appreciate Hugh Grant's uh, career defining performance in my mind, I, I, I'm all about it. Yeah, I'm actually about 40 days into a child watching it once a day. Um, <laughs> oh, my and, goodness. Uh, it actually, bizarrely, the film gets better and better I every bet you time it does. you watch it. I like, bet I, it does. If ever there was a child maybe for one minute treatment, it's got to be Paddington. Yeah. Oh, dear God. See, I, I think Michael's just trying. He's just trying to throw more projects at me in isolation. I, I cannot do any more, but I promise you I will put that in the bank uh, for, for much, much later on. Mate, thank you so much for your time again. I really appreciate it. Bless you. Thank you so much to my wonderful guest, Michael McLennan. Michael can be found on Vimeo at Vimeo forward slash secret 
films. He is a filmmaker, an editor, a teacher um, for all young and emerging filmmakers in Sydney. Uh, an incredible film mind, and I'm so pleased that he got to come on the show again. Thank you so much, Michael. This has been another episode of All the President's Minutes. We have a brand new schedule for the show kicking off right now. So if you're listening to this episode, episode 40 with Jason Bailey, um, you'll just need to know that now every Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday uh, for the next coming months, you're going to have brand spanking new episodes of All the President's Minutes in your calendar in your schedule of listening we have a stack of other things happening on one heat minute productions as well every friday australian time a brand new show our seventh season on one heat minute productions is miami nice co-hosted by katie walsh where we go through michael mann's misunderstood masterpiece miami vice one topic one morsel at a time we go all over it. It is both a listen along and a watch along podcast um, where we will occasionally drink along while we're talking about it. Um, so we'd love you to check that out. And also on Saturday's Australian time, but Friday's US time, we still have our amazing increment vice dropping every single week with host Travis Woods and an array of amazing and talented guests. So check that out. Get it in your ears. If you want to support the show, Patreon forward slash Blake Howard. That's where all of our one heat minute production support can be. But right now in this crazy time of COVID, we just love if you could share and recommend the show to anyone who you think would dig it. We have a whole stack of back catalog things. Nothing is behind a paywall. We have the whole one heat minute series. We have last 12 minutes of the Mohicans. We have contingent episodes, about 20 episodes going through and checking in on folks. Some of those will pop back up in the near future. And also Josie and the Podcats, a 12 episode limited series going through the 2001 satire of the music industry, Josie and the Pussycats, um, an episode at the time covering all the way from the inception of the characters through to the legacy of the 2001 film a stack of great episodes hosted by maria lewis um, and produced by myself so check that one out as well but this has been another episode of one eight minute productions thank you so much for listening again and if you're still listening what the hell are you doing go listen to the next episode